Good morning, everyone. Wow, I was having such a good time. I forgot that I had to come and do this, really. Um, <clears throat> but sadly for you, I do. So, um, But God has not finished yet, just because worship has finished. Um, our worship continues, because we're going to look in the Word of God, and we're going to carry on in our Luke series today. Um, uh, we took a, a, a brief break last week, where Catherine spoke to us on worship, I hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. It was very good. Um, got a lot out of it myself. Even this week, I was just going over what she said. Um, so if you didn't catch that last week, I'd just encourage you to listen to that um, on the website. Um, but this week, we're going to go back to Luke. Um, we are going from Luke chapter 6, from verse 1 today. So <clears throat> we've got a few things to get through. Uh, just a, a brief recap on last time. Uh, if you remember, Adam spoke at the, on the end of chapter 5 about the calling of Levi, uh, who was eventually the, one of the disciples, Matthew, uh, and he was talking about the question of fasting and wineskin, new wineskin and old wineskin. I'm, I'm sure you remember that. Um, I mean, I listened to it twice, so I, I definitely remember it. But um, it was, he spoke about some very important themes on that and things that actually continue into the verses that we're looking at today. Uh, he covered things like legalism. When we're talking about old wineskin and new wineskin, it's not just about liking new things or, or you liking it the old way. That, it was about more than that. Um, and he asked this question. I don't know if you remember this question. He, he asked, are we trying to combine legalism and grace in our Christianity? Huge question. Are we trying to combine legalism and grace in our Christianity? Uh, and he looked at that verse in verse 30, at the end of the last bit where um, he's looking at old and new wineskins. And it says in verse 37 that the new wine will burst the skins and be spilled. And Adam said, Jesus, is talking about Jesus, will be spilled out onto the floor. Really significant word. And what we're looking at today, like I said, carries on into this, the verses we're looking at from chapter 6, verse 1. This carries on this discourse between Jesus and the Pharisees. These religious people are, uh, again, kind of uh, trying to ply Jesus with questions and trying to catch him out. Um, and today, it's, again, more uh, questions where they're trying to catch him out. And they, they're what they kind of call the Sabbath controversies and the readers. So we're going to go, first chunk we're going to look at is chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. So let's look at that. <clears throat> chapter 6, verse 1. On a Sabbath, whilst he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rub rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So, Jesus is walking through the grain fields with his disciples, and they're plucking this grain to eat. And then all of a sudden, the Pharisees pop up. 
It says, doesn't it, in the first uh, verse, on the Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, these Pharisees, they were either following him, which is probably likely he was, they were in a crowd of people that were following Jesus, or they were hiding in the grain field, which would have been a bit weird, wouldn't it? <laughs> you know, hiding in the grain, I think he's coming. He said he was coming, didn't he? Yeah. There he is. What are you doing? What's lawful on the Sabbath? That would be weird, wouldn't it? <laughs> you know how I feel about weird. <clears throat> so, they ask him, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, let's just talk about the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of rest. God ordained on the seventh day, God rested. It's the fourth commandment in Exodus 20. It says, six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall not do any work. So the disciples are likely to be walking on the edge of a grain field. And uh, they're taking grain from here. In God's law, it says that farmers were to leave the edges of their fields unplowed. So the poor and people who were traveling could take the grains and eat them. And they rub it in their hands. This is what they would do. They would take it, rub it in their hands, blow away the chaff and eat what was remaining. That's how they would do it. But these religious people, the Pharisees, see what they're doing and they think they're working. That's what they're doing. They're working. They see it as reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing food. That's what they think they're doing. They see the the plucking of the grain as the reaping, and the threshing threshing and winnowing as the rubbing, uh, and the blowing away as the preparing food. That's what they see that that they're doing. Oh, you're working. These guys are bound by rules. Something that was supposed to be good just isn't fun anymore. You ever play games or board games with people who really need to stick to the rules? (laughs) Sorry, Dave and Matt Harker. Um, But, you know, you get get the games out and you start to play. You think, oh, this is going to be fun. Oh, no, that's not in the rules. You can't do that. (laughs) Oh, I thought this was going to be fun. (sighs) I didn't read rule 3.7. I'm sorry. Or, you know, days off, you think, yeah, can you imagine having a day off and then someone says, oh, you've, got to have, you've got to do this and you've got to do this, or don't do that and don't do that. It doesn't sound like a good, fun day off, does it? Now, sometimes, I'm sure my wife will tell you, on a day off, I can start a bit grumpy and I have to work my way in to, to the day off and I, I get better. I have to kind of do certain things, you know, eat and drink tea and stuff, and then I, and I worship, and then I get better. Or we'll go out and do stuff. And I think if somebody said, right, I wake up in the morning on my day off, right, Ian, don't do this, don't do that, don't... Well, this is not fun. I might as well go back to work. But these rules were added. This was not in God's law. This was in a book that the uh, religious, the Pharisees and others wrote called the Mishnah. And there were 39 different restrictions about what you could and couldn't do on a day off. Imagine that on your day off. Here's 39 things you can and can't do. Oh, great. That's good. 
rules about your day off. Who wants rules about their day off? Oh, nobody. That's, that's good. So they ask this question, and as usual, Jesus is on another level. What does Jesus normally do when people ask him questions? He comes back with a question. No, no Jesus, I've asked you a question. Now, I don't want another question. He says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? So Jesus is referring to <clears throat> excuse me, 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 to 7. David is in a place called Nob. Don't you just love the, place, the names in the Bible? <laughs> David is in a place called Nob, and he goes to the tabernacle. He's on the run from Saul. And he goes to the priest and he asks the priest, have you got any food? And the priest says, well, I've only got the holy bread. The holy sacred bread, as it says, the bread of presence. There, there would have been 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel on a table. Only the priests, as Jesus says, had the right to eat this bread. Jesus is saying, if you're condemning me, to the Pharisees. He's saying, if you're condemning me for this, you're condemning David. And that leaves them with a problem. Jesus is arguing here that the, the regulations were never meant to supersede compassion. David needed food. Jesus and his disciples needed food. There's a basic need like David's, that was more important. And when Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying, I, I have the authority. That's, this is really what this bit about, is about. This is about the authority of Jesus. He has the authority to overrule the Pharisees' traditions and regulations. He created the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus isn't saying as well, I've come, away, come to do away with the Sabbath. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he's all about the Sabbath. And it's easy to skip over, actually, the, the Sabbath bit here, because it is really about Jesus' authority, taking authority here. But in our workaholic culture, I think it's important that we touch on this, on Sabbath rest. See, one side of the Sabbath here, people suffered from rules and regulations. But now we are on the other side of the Sabbath where people don't rest. The Sabbath was invented for people to rest and rest well. Rest, true rest, is about interrupting the ceaseless round of striving. It takes a true act of the will to rest. Rest does not come naturally to a lot of us. It comes naturally to some. <laughs> but it does not come naturally to a lot of us. And it is more than just stop working. That, that's rest, this deep Sabbath rest, is more than just to stop working. There's a deeper rest that's needed. There is such striving within to prove ourselves that we need rest, deep spiritual rest. 
When Jesus says he's the Lord of the Sabbath, he, he is saying, come to me. He's saying, only by coming to me will you find rest. Jesus is saying, I am the, the one that the Sabbath is pointing to. I am the one that can give you deep rest that your heart is longing for. I am the Lord of rest. That is what he's saying. If you want long, true, lasting rest, then you need to go to him. And if you've gone to him and you still don't have rest, you haven't taken hold of what you have in Christ. When, in the beginning, in Genesis, when God was creating, the Trinity was there. God was creating. At the end of each day, what did he say? It's good. It's good. And what did he say at the end of the six days of creating? It's very good. That's what it means to be ultimately satisfied. To be at peace. Be at peace with what's been done. God rested. And he's God. He doesn't get tired. And he rested. The Sabbath was invented to remind us of the divine within. That we are image bearers. To show us that like our creator, we are about more than just work. In the beginning, in Eden, there was work. And work in itself is not necessarily the problem. It is after the fall, but it's part of it. But it's the absence of deep rest. See, religious and non-religious people are the same. Religious people say, if I'm good enough, if I live a certain way, God will accept me. And secular people are the same. They're always striving, uh, working hard to prove themselves, always having to assure themselves that they matter, that they're someone important. But that work will never, ever finish. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You will, he says, you will. You will find rest for your souls. He doesn't say you might. Come to me and you might. You might find some rest. No, you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is saying, only if you find your identity in me, will you find rest. Will you be able to look at your life, your work, everything, and say, like God did, It's good. It's good. At the end of the next section that we're about to look at, in verse 11, the Pharisees essentially start to plot to kill Jesus. In verse 11. They don't realize that they're cementing his place as Lord of the Sabbath. Because when he eventually dies on the cross, he finishes all striving. At the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. For our sake, he who made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The work has been done. You don't have to strive to prove, because when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. If you're in Christ. The finished work of Christ. He sees the work of Christ, not your work. He sees Jesus' perfect record, not yours. You can rest in that today, child of God. Not finding rest, 
come to him. Don't just crawl from holiday to holiday or weekend to weekend. Stopping and doing nothing often doesn't really help. But resting in him does. Ask, seek, knock, pray, worship, wait on him. Listen. Listen. Just wait. What is he wanting to say to you? And he will come. He will. And you will find rest in him. I said before, I find such fulfillment in worship. In corporate, this morning, I, I was standing next to Kim and thinking, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to speak. I was just so overcome by just the presence of God, his love, his grace, his mercy. And when I'm by myself as well, I just love to worship. Love to worship. I find it so fulfilling and, and it fills me up. And I find rest in him when I'm doing that. I find it builds me up. Catherine said last week, didn't she, that we were designed to, to draw near to him. I, I'm always looking for new songs as well, just to, that will just help me and just sing songs of truth. And it just does me good. That's where I find rest and true Sabbath rest. Just found a, a couple of, uh, I'm always often looking in, on YouTube and stuff for worship, and there's this, this great church called the Pentecostals of Alexandria. There's about 700 people on the stage, but the songs just are amazing. Just blow me away. Just, and there's another set of people called People and Songs, just singing such truth. Listening to those people just do me good, and others. If you can't rest, if you're always busy, you're a slave. If you can't say no to family, to work, to people, you're a slave. You're a slave because you're defined by what people think of you by fear of rejection. Do not be defined by that. Be defined by Christ. Be defined by Christ. I'm just going to let you think about that for a minute. And resting is also trusting. To trust that he provides. When you rest and try and spend time with him and worship, remind yourself of who you are in him. That's what I try to do. And having tea as well helps. But <coughs> Never go on holiday from God as well. When you go on holiday, you don't say, I'm just going to go and enjoy my time. and I'm just going to do this. I've found when I've done that, and I've not read my Bible, or I've, and I've not spent time praying, I come away thinking, oh, I could do it another holiday, because I haven't really rested in him. True rest. Just lastly, really, parents. While you can, spend time with your kids. Show them what it is to rest. 
show them that they are priority as well in this workaholic culture. We, we get sucked into so many lies, like uh, if we work hard now, we're giving them a good future. Inputting into your children's lives now is giving them a good future. That's all I've got to say on, on rest. Let's move on. <clears throat> We've still got quite a bit to get through, so let's, let's move on. Verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And after looking at them all, look, after looking around at them all, he said to them, to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus they were filled with fury wow again we find Jesus teaching in a synagogue and again the religious people are watching don't think they're hiding anyone this time <clears throat> and they're watching what he might do I, I, I love the detail in Luke as well that he says the, the man whose right hand was withered love that detail um, it shows me that the reliability of Scripture when I read stuff like that. His right hand was withered. Because if this was, as some people might say, if you get into discussions about God with people that aren't Christians or have any faith, they say it's all made up. Well, this, this gives me reliability. Because this type of uh, literacy did not exist in, when this was written. There was no detail in fiction. It says his right hand shows us the reliability of Scripture. So they're watching to see if Jesus breaks any more Sabbath rules, any of the 39. It was a, there was a rule that unless it was life-threatening or there was a baby being born, you could not perform uh, healing or um, medical work on the Sabbath. You were allowed to kill a burglar, if it prevented, if it saved life on the Sabbath. But you weren't allowed to heal unless it was an emergency. You could kill a burglar, but you couldn't heal. People were getting tied up in religious rules. And we laugh at this, um, but it is so easy to happen to us all. Um, just a, heard a story recently of a guy that was in the Middle East and he went to, um, uh, he was in a hotel and he got in an elevator and the elevator stopped at every floor. And he looked around at the people in the elevator and he said, why, why is this so slow? And the people in the elevator said, ah, this is the Sabbat elevator. And he said, is, is that Hebrew for slow? Or? And they said, no, this is the Sabbath uh, uh, elevator it, on the Sabbath, it would be sinful for us to uh, touch electronics and make them work. So he said, ah, oh, 
okay. Uh, is there a Gentile elevator? And he said, yes, that's the next one along. <laughs> true, true story. The guy gets out of the, of the elevator, goes to the Gentile elevator. As he gets in, the other guys in the, in the Sabbat elevator come and follow him and say, can you press floor two and seven? <laughs> He said, yes, I am a new covenant Christian. I can sin on your behalf. Um, Legalism is law abiding to please, and it is death. Legalism is law-abiding to please, and it is death. But living in a relationship where you know and love Jesus and want to follow him and live like him out of a true heart for God. Again, I, I, I loved what Catherine said about drawing near to God in difficult times, how she really seeked after the Lord, seeking him in the valley. They were designed to draw near to him. When we do that, we get his heart. How we should live, rather than this kind of legal framework. We think we're free from it as Christians, but it so easily slips in. Remember the question, what Adam asked? Are we trying to combine legalism and grace into our Christianity? And if we are, the new wine, Jesus will be spilled onto the floor. That was huge. When, that, when he said that, that hit me like a truck. I thought that was huge. We don't vindicate ourselves by doing stuff. Well, we pray and read our Bibles. We think, well, I've done that stuff, God. You should listen to my prayers now. If we think like that, we've slipped into legalism. We can drift into this mental framework of legalism. Well, uh, I've been a good enough parent, husband, wife. It pushes us back into a legal way of thinking and living. We want to adhere to certain rules and regulations. Well, we think, I'm not going to drink, or if I don't smoke, uh, watch certain things. Uh, We can avoid these things and we'll be spiritual. We'll reach a certain level and God will want to use me more. No. That's not how it works. Legalists want to earn their right before God, and it isolates the law and God from wanting to obey God and obeying God from any sort of relationship. It isolates relationship, and that's what he wants. Christianity is not following a list of do's and don'ts, moral principles, because if you do, trying to keep the law is an end unto itself. And you can slip into thinking, well, I've earned this. And there's nothing you can do to earn it. We cannot earn it. We don't deserve it. It's his grace in me. I won't sing it. (laughs) There is a spirit of the law which was brought to help and show us our sin. The gospel brings you out of an age. The age of the law. The law is no longer relevant. Paul says in Galatians, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Galatians 2, 19. And then even, 
harder than that. In Galatians 5, Paul says, You who want to be justified by the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. You have cut yourself off from Christ if you try to live like this. My, when I was digging into this, my, my jaw hit the floor. You cut yourself off from Christ if you try to earn it. It's huge. Jesus has dealt with sin and the law, so we don't have to live by law-keeping to make ourselves right with God. A little bit of legalism means we take on the whole thing. We separate ourselves from Jesus. He is spilled out on the floor. We're adding on to the gospel. He died so that you don't have to. He fulfilled the law so that you don't have to. He has impressed on your behalf. We are wonderfully free by his grace. Hallelujah. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are wonderfully free. We are in Christ. When we're baptised, it shows us that we have died to ourselves and to sin. And when we are raised again, we are with Christ, free from the power of sin. We are now slaves of righteousness. Charles Spurgeon says on the covenants he says what a magna carta is this the old covenant says keep the law and live the new covenant is you shall live and i will lead you to keep my law for i will write it on your heart love charles Spurgeon. jesus shows mercy if you want to know more um, i just want to recommend a book about grace and being kind of Dead to Law and Legalism. It's a book by Terry Virgo. It's called God's Lavish Grace. Um, You'd be able to pick it up reasonably cheap. You can't have this one because I need to recommend it this afternoon as well. Um, And it's the only one we've got here. But God's Lavish Grace. You could pick it up pretty cheap, I'm sure, online somewhere. Just Terry goes a lot deeper into that sort of stuff. Jesus shows mercy. He doesn't even touch the man. He commands him to stretch out his hand, and he did so. And his hand was restored just by speaking. Jesus is, again, way ahead. He's on another level. Just speaking shows grace, shows mercy, shows that the law of love goes beyond the law of rules. Just lastly, on on law and legalism, it can even affect our evangelism. It can affect us or prevent us from spending time with people who aren't like us, who haven't quite reached our level of morality. The longer you are a Christian, you should look more like Christ. I know this because I really, really didn't look like Christ 16 years ago. Now I look a bit more like him. And I'm not like the people that I used to spend my time with them. I was very much like them. I would lead them into some very bad situations. But now I'm not like that. 
And now I have to ask myself a question. Do I still spend my time with people like that? Jesus was often accused of being a friend of sinners. When was the last time we were accused of being that? A friend of sinners. And it says, just moving on, because we're running out of time. Verse 11 says, they were so mad. And in the original Greek word, it refers to a mindless rage. Or irrational, pathological anger. In Mark, it even says they plotted to destroy him in the same bet. Let's move on. Verse 12. We've moved on from the Sabbath, so we can have a break. (laughs) We can have a break from the law and legalism. Okay, verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and he chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, who he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Ooh. Now, the beginning says Jesus goes out to the mountain to pray all night. I'm not quite sure how close in time this was to the previous events, but after conflict and before a big decision, Jesus goes out to pray all night. And then he chooses 12 men to form this new community. 12 men of no particular standing in society. No special gifts that he saw in them. No special talents that they brought to the table. They were fishermen, tax collectors, cynics, a revolutionary, and a man who would ultimately betray him. Even here, we see the cross in the distance. Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. What he did have were men who were willing to obey, who would give up their lives to follow Jesus. So we can come to God with our riches, with our qualifications, with our talents, and he says, will you give it all up? Will you die to self? Will you follow me? You might think, I I don't have anything to offer. God uses our weaknesses to make his strength perfect. 2 Corinthians 12 says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly, this is Paul speaking, of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Will you boast in your weaknesses so the power of Christ can rest upon you? I remember in the early days of my Christian life, I got saved in this church. On a Sunday morning, used to, when I first started coming in, we would stay in for worship, and then we would go downstairs and do Alpha in um, Norman's office. Norman planted this church um, about 400 years ago. And um, 
and we would go down into Norman's office and watch Alpha on a VHS. It's not like it is these days. And Nicky Gumbel would stand there and talk for the whole time, uh, which was very good. Um, but I, I would struggle because I would look around and see everybody else and think, they all look like they've got it together. They all look quite clever and intelligent and they've got really impressive jobs. And I was a lead roofer. It's like, well, I, I know I'm saved and God loves me, and, but I'm not sure if I can do anything. I've got nothing to offer, really, apart from, you know, a bit of cheek and a bit, bit of wit, maybe. I haven't got anything else. I know a lot about football that do, and lead work. That, that's not really going to get me far, God, is it? I, mean, I remember reading a verse, and it says that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And I thought, well, God, then I'm pretty foolish. And you can use me. Like these mix of men, God uses all sorts of different people. So don't discount yourself. You might be asked to serve in an area. Herman might ask you to lead a connect group. God uses the most unlikely of people. Lead roofers who only know about football. It's often the most qualified that don't work out. Judas Iscariot. Iscariot most likely indicates that Judas came from the town of Kerioth, meaning he was the only Judean. So he was probably the most qualified of within the group of disciples. But Jesus was well aware of how Judas would end up treating him. Because even then, Jesus had the cross in mind. So remember, you are called by him. You are called as a child of God. You can come to him with your weaknesses with your imperfections, and he loves you. To, he wants you to follow him, to be part of his mission, because you're saved by his grace, you're chosen, you're accepted, you're loved, you're forgiven, and you can come to him today again, or for the first time. If you do not know Jesus, he is calling you today, like these disciples, to come to him. And he's saying, come and be part of my mission. Should we pray? Let's stand. Lord, thank you that you love us that you have come to free us from sin, from death, from law. Thank you for your grace. And you can come to him today. 
If you do not know Jesus, if you would not call yourself a Christian, he is calling you today to be part of his glorious church, of his wonderful mission of reaching the lost, the broken. And all you have to do is come to him and just say, Lord, I'm sorry. You can just say it after me. Say these words quietly and in the quietness of your own heart. Jesus, thank you that you love me and you died for me on the cross. I'm sorry for turning my back on you and living my own way. Please, now, put the cross to my account. And by your Holy Spirit, come and fill me and help me live a life following you. In Jesus' name. And as we just draw to an end, Lord, we just give ourselves again to you. Thank you that you accept us in our weaknesses. Let's just end this morning just offering our praise to him.